0: I said to Jeff, I don't know how to do a faithful adaptation of your book. I just literally don't know how to do it. And if, if what you need is a faithful adaptation, then you will need someone else because I'm not the guy who's going to be able to do that.
1: I'm Sean Fennessy, editor-in-chief of The Ringer, and this is The Big Picture, a conversation show with some of the most exciting filmmakers in the world. Some movies hum at a different frequency, The writer-director Alex Garland makes quiet movies that eventually roar in a way that is different from other sci-fi. His debut, 2015's Ex Machina, was an exploration of artificial intelligence that became a surprise hit and an Oscar winner. His latest, Annihilation, is an adaptation of the novelist Jeff Vandermeer's best-selling book, though Garland takes some fascinating liberties with the story. Natalie Portman, Oscar Isaac, and Tessa Thompson star as explorers and scientists on a mission to explore a colorful, spectral disturbance called the shimmer that is taking over a massive land in the american south the closer they get to the shimmer the more horrifying it becomes garland and i talked recently about the making of this unusual and masterful movie his early days as a novelist and screenwriter of movies like 28 days later in sunshine and a whole lot more here's alex garland Really excited to be joined today by one of my favorite filmmakers, Alex Garland. Alex, thank you for coming in.
0: Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Alex, I want to know what kind of movie you knew you wanted to make after Ex Machina and the success of that movie. Did you have a sense of the kind of film you wanted to do next?
0: Uh, no, not really. Um, but I do think that I always react against the thing I just did. Before Ex Machina was a film Dread, which is a kind of drug-fueled, ultra-violent psychotic movie, very different to Ex Machina. And then before Dread was Never Let Me Go, which is small, sort of sad, contained literary adaptation. So there's always a sense of trying to avoid what you just did um, and move against what you just did. But past that, not really.
1: Did that extend even to when you were writing the novels? Were you trying to do something that was completely different?
0: I think it's always been the case. Yeah, definitely, actually, because I think the first film, the first film I ever wrote uh, was twenty eight days later, and that was a reaction uh against the the book i'd just written, and also in a funny way the film adaptation of The Beach, which was a book I'd written, the first book I'd written, which I thought was kind of uh, soft in some respects and wanted more aggression and uh, some more sort of punk attitude in it, I guess. And then, So it started all the way back then. 28 Days Later was a reaction against that, I think. So it's not necessarily a reaction against something because it's bad. It's just a reaction against it because that's just the place you've been and you get bored. Yeah, you want
1: to change it up. Yeah. Did you have control over that as a screenwriter, though? We usually hear that, you know, the director obviously is in command of the medium. You're, no, were you working but, for hire when you're writing screenplays? Did you have more control in those scenarios than people yeah, think you would?
0: Yeah, partly, I think, because I came from novel writing. So I just didn't buy into the whole idea that the screenwriter uh, is being dominated in that respect. Because Because the act of writing is kind of similar, I suppose. You're coming up with story and themes and characters and you know, what the characters are doing and why they're doing it. And so uh, I, I felt not exactly ownership, but but uh, responsibility or something like that. And, and actually, by the way, in reality, I think that's less uncommon than it's perceived to be. I think we present films a certain kind of way. But if you lift the lid and look underneath at how the film is made, I think it's actually more common. That's interesting.
1: So where how does Annihilation come in? How does, how does this become the thing that is a reaction to Ex Machina?
0: Well... Annihilation is kind of like this weird metaphysical sort of hallucinogenic atmosphere piece in a funny kind of way. It's less sort of rigorous. It is actually rigorous, but it's less overtly rigorous. Right. It's not Um, as practical. Yeah. And Ex Machina is like a little uh, sort of Swiss watch type film. It's sort of all cogs and gears and ticking parts. When did you read the book? I read it in post-production of Ex Machina. Um, it was in galley form. Uh, one of the producers of Ex Machina had bought it, uh, Scott Rudin, and he he sent it to me and he said, you should check this out. I was still in the edit of Ex Machina and, and I read it and immediately... I was really struck by its really incredibly original book, and it's very atmospheric. And um, I just said, yeah, I'm I'm in. had a sort of struggle about trying to think how to adapt it. But I had a couple of conversations with Jeff, and actually I just launched into it. And I I started writing it pretty promptly, actually.
1: Was there anything that you did on Ex Machina that you didn't want to repeat in a more like process-driven way? That you you had made a certain kind of film one way? Did you say, well, I I want to make sure it's different than this?
0: No. No, I think process is dictated by the project. So, uh, so say in a case, a film like X Machina. It's a, I mean, I, I, in a way, it's sort of crass talking in these terms, but there's a sort of practical truth to it. X Machina is a fifteen million dollar film uh, with a six week shoot uh, with a very small cast and and uh, really a single location. It's four people in one house, and um, uh, that actually makes it quite manageable in all sorts of respects. And the weird thing is that we had more time and more resources actually with Ex Machina than we did with Annihilation, which sort of notionally has a bigger budget But the budget is, what, I don't know, two and a half times the size of Ex Machina. But we're trying to do something which is like six or seven times more complex in terms of the scale of the cast and the number of locations and the VFX requirements. So on a day-to-day level, the reality of making Ex Machina was was much more guerrilla filmmaking by comparison than Ex Machina was.
1: That's interesting. Did you know you wanted the scope of your next film to be bigger
0: regardless? No, don't think in those terms. Just, Just write the thing the thing that grabs you, the thing you're obsessed with, just do it and then figure out how to make it. And then all of the, what is the phrase? It's like function follows form or mm-hmm. form follows function, whatever the fuck it is. Anyway, it's it's like you, you come up with the idea and then you figure out how to do it. And then an enormous amount of how to do it becomes what the film is in a weird way.
1: What obsessed you or captured something in you in the story?
0: Well, in Jeff's book, it was the atmosphere. I found that, reading the book was a weirdly similar experience to having a dream and there was something that's uh, how he
1: wrote it right isn't that the, the origin story where he was dreaming it and he woke up and he went downstairs and he started to write i believe oh, I that read could that.
0: be i've not heard that before yeah. i mean uh, that that could be the case so initially it was that it was it was the book which i thought was just original and provocative and stuff and separate to that i i had another set of preoccupations always the films i work on have got some obsession or another that that gets sort of jammed into it, I guess. Particularly in the case of Annihilation, it was really about self-destruction. It was about the ways in which people are self-destructive, the sort of hidden ways and the obvious ways, and why it is that, that all of us are in some way self-destructive. I just sort of found it a weird thing. And I I I don't know know you. Uh, you assure me this is the first time we met. Although I, for some reason I think we have met before. But anyway, um,
1: <laughs> I, I, I I hope that's true. And I <laughs> and I <I'm> forgot
0: <laughs> whether whether we've met or not. I I don't know you, but I am pretty sure that you are self-destructive in some ways, in some parts of More your character. More than you know, Alex. More well, than it, you know. Well, exactly right, and and uh, vice versa. Mm-hmm. And when you stop to think about it, that's sort of odd. It's it's just an odd thing to observe. I I mean I noticed obviously some people self destruction is very obvious, they're addicted to heroin or alcohol or they're recidivists or something and you can see it it's it's straightforward, but then you meet people who are very together and they seem very comfortable in their own skin and they're very sort of self possessed and they've got a great job and everything it's like they know the secret of life. Are you describing me now? Uh, th- that's this is you. Okay, great. And and then you get then I get to know you. And I discover that there's fissures and cracks and in between the fissures and cracks is really weird behavior mm-hmm. where you're like dismantling an old friendship with a childhood friend. Yeah, you're nodding because that's exactly what you're doing. That may be me. Yeah, right. And and it's sort of weird. We yeah. do these meaningless acts of self-discipline anyway. So that became like the fixation of the movie.
1: That's really interesting. When you t- talk to Jeff about the book and you say, this is something that compels me about it, are you guys in agreement or is it okay if you have a good, different interpretation?
0: Um, I hope we're okay. Jeff was very generous about it. I said to Jeff, I don't know how to do a faithful adaptation of your book. I just literally don't know how to do it. And if if what you need is a faithful adaptation, then you will need someone else because I'm not the guy who's going to be able to do that. Um, and Jeff was really generous and relaxed and in a way gave me the permission that I needed to to make this rather sort of weird adaptation of his really beautiful book. I thought that the changes that you made were fascinating and, and
1: worked really well. I, when I read the novel, I, I couldn't understand how it would be a film. Um, so it's fascinating to me that you even... You, you, that Scott thought of it as a film and that you immediately responded to it. W- when you make changes like that, especially as a person who has been adapted and, and knows what this process is like.
0: And knows that it can suck.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Are you How 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 do you explain some of those things to an author? Do you even feel like you have to, or you just go off and do your thing?
0: No, I try to explain it. Uh, not in terms of the specifics of the changes, because uh, I think that's, you can only really demonstrate that with the changes themselves. Mm-hmm. You can't say, I'm going to do this and this and this. You just, what i did was i just wrote it and i showed it to jeff and said look this this was like this is what i came up with but as much as possible try to be transparent about uh intention and process i suppose and just try to be straightforward and the the key way to get around creative uh creatively complicated things is is primarily honesty
1: you described the shooting as obviously a little bit more difficult because you had this huge scope in this story and yeah. more actors, and a, you're, you're outside from just on of the a film. technical level. It's yeah. more difficult. Yeah. What um, did you have a sense that it would be that much of a challenge when you started making the film?
0: Yeah, because I've been doing this twenty years now, mm-hmm. and and I know, you, you know, I know if I write interior uh, podcast room day right, and and it's this room yeah. here,
1: delightful and- conversation. That's all you have to write.
0: Exactly. Yeah, and then say to the actors get on with it. See you later. Um, <laughs> the shooting this scene in many ways is is going to be straightforward. You can find some interesting angles, but basically we're going to end up with some conventional stuff like a wide and a couple of singles and some mids. And you know there, there'll be some sort of familiar grammar to it. Yeah. You know. Conversely, if you say uh, exterior. Uh, swamp, mutant bear, day, except it's not day, it's sort of psychedelic twilight, then things are going to be trickier.
1: Yes, you have to literally invent a different consciousness, a different reality.
0: Yeah, I think it all flowed from Jeff's book, really, but there was a lot of uh, requirement for unexpected imagery that would be sort of beautiful and maybe disturbing often at the same time, and it, it didn't give us too many safe spaces to retire to. You know, if you're doing... A political thriller that has a car chase in it. There's some grammar, you know. There's some familiar grammar that you can latch onto, and then you can find a great stunt supervisor and mess with the grammar and subvert it. But you're you're on you're on in some respects familiar territory: roads, cars, speed, you know, handbrake turns, whatever it is. You, you know what I mean? So there's
1: no grammar for mutant bears, though.
0: Uh There's probably some did you, if you hunt around, but yeah, basically,
1: right? Basically, did you? Reference films, watch films, before you started working on this? Did you have uh, some some things you look back on?
0: Uh, Yeah, but it's all very untrustworthy. I mean, I think that... um, Why do you say that? Because when people say, what are your references or what are your influences, it's often uh, a sort of a bit of a rationalization. And uh, it's usually just a list of stuff you like rather than the actual influences and <laughs> and so much much later somebody says you know this scene sort of reminds me of x and suddenly you think oh yeah yeah that's true it is that is where it comes from it is a uh, an influence of that thing and the real influences tend to be more unconscious than conscious but you know while we were making it there was a bunch of films we talk about uh, stalker apocalypse now um, southern comfort uh, which provided various sorts of reference points. But the, the the real reference points were probably a bit more obscured.
1: How did you go about designing the actual look of some of this stuff? Because, you know, we are entering essentially a new world. The shimmer, which is a huge part of the story, is a visual. It needs to be visually executed. You know, it's not just an idea in a book anymore.
0: Well, the true answer to that is that I write a script and then I distribute the script amongst the collective of people I work with. And then what happens is a rolling conversation where a bunch of people are saying, what about this, what about that? And that that collective of people who are all working together but are also all autonomous um, start a sort of organic evolution, which is via a large interdepartmental conversation that ends up being the film.
1: Have you personally... Throwing yourself headlong into some of the more technical aspects of filmmaking because i think people hear well he was a novelist and then he was a screenwriter for many years obviously you were on sets but making a film like this is quite complex so do you feel like you have a grasp of how every single element of this stuff works
0: um no uh, i have a grasp of how the key elements that i am really concerned with work I see the process as being like a, a sort of parallax view of a mountain range. That it, as you shift your perspective, some peaks sort of recede or grow in importance or shrink into the distance. And uh, rather than a sort of simple pyramid structure, uh, a sort of monolith pyramid structure. So I don't want to. I don't want to sound like me knowing a little bit of technical knowledge is taking away from the departments. The departments are basically autonomous but involved in a conversation which we're all sharing.
1: This is masterful leadership, though. This is the thing that – I know you've talked about this in the past, too. Where it's it, the
0: absence of leadership, I think. Mm-hmm. In, in some ways, maybe because I'm 47 and because uh, punk arrived at a certain time in my life or something like that, some notion of anarchy has, has located dubious itself dubious of the authority
1: head. of the auteur.
0: I, I'm dubious of authority full stop. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't like pyramid structures anywhere, you know that I find them irritating. The, the key thing is that there is a notion of anarchy, which is like not chaos, but actually something slightly more collegiate. Um, An
1: organized lack of order.
0: A, a sort of benign lack of order, mm-hmm. a sort of friendly one. Sure. Where you've, you've got a common goal, you're all aiming in the same direction, and you get on with it in your own ways. It's something like that.
1: I love that. How'd you put the cast together? Why, why these people?
0: Um, Oscar Isaac, I just adore him and I really like working with him. I like him as a human, and I think he's an incredibly gifted actor. And so um, Natalie Portman had a a particular quality that I was really keen to get, which is, relates actually to the thing we were just talking about, the different sorts of self-destruction models that you can have. She has enormous sort of poise and a sense of control, Mm -hmm. but she also has the ability to, within that sense of Poison control to sort of display glimpses, flashes, and then great sort of explosions of damage, and it was it was it was particularly the sort of coexistence of those two states that was important. And with uh, Tessa and Gina and Tuva and Jennifer, it was it was much more just old fashioned casting.
1: Well, is it important for you that obviously with someone like Oscar, who you have a relationship with and who understands your work? this doesn't have to happen. But with someone like Natalie, do you have to have a series of conversations where you say, this is what this film is, or you tell me what you think this film is, and then we'll see if this makes sense?
0: Yeah, but it wasn't a series. It was one. It was one long conversation. Uh, it was a long time before we started shooting, like maybe, I mean, really a long time. We, we, we met, and she'd read the script, and she'd watched Ex Machina. We, we just sort of sat down, and I said, look, here's the plan. A lot of what we talked about actually was process. I said, "This is this is the intention, and this is how I work." And do you think that's a way you would fit in with or something? It, it, it was it was that sort of conversation. But the thing about someone like Natalie Portman is that she's she's in many respects a very sort of demonstrated known quantity. Natalie, I, when's the first time I saw her in something? She was probably like eleven,
1: mm-hmm. in Leon
0: or something. Yeah. I mean, that, that that's really a long time ago. There's a lot of films, and so. Um, Yeah, we
1: all have a relationship with her in some way.
0: You feel like you know much more about them than they know about you.
1: I was thinking recently about if you ever go back and look at the films that you've written but didn't direct, and if you thought about how you might have done those things differently if you were directing the films. Not to undermine the people who actually directed those films, but because now you have taken on a bigger film with a bigger budget, and is there a part of you that says, oh, actually, I might have done this differently?
0: That's a complicated question. It's difficult for me to answer it too honestly. I mean, I try not to bullshit, I think, mm-hmm. when talking. And so if I feel like I'm about to, uh, i am probably try and dodge the question. I mean...
1: I ask specifically because of the experience that you have now that maybe you didn't have if you were on set 10 years ago while working on a film or something like that.
0: I would say that broadly what happened was the first guy I worked with was Danny Boyle. And Danny is is someone who is not intimidated by writers and not intimidated by having them around. So he wanted me on the set. I was in rehearsals and uh, I was in the edit. And that is because Danny is basically not neurotic. And once that, because that was my schooling in film, I just carried that through. So if then somebody said, "I'm not sure I want you in rehearsals," I'd be like, "What the fuck are you talking about? I'm going to be in the rehearsal because my my schooling came from Danny, mm-hmm. and um, it, it's difficult for me to talk about that." Makes but,
1: sense. That's yeah. interesting, though. Does do you still have a good relationship with Danny? Oh yeah. yeah. And does he we does he see your films? Do you guys talk yesterday about? Yesterday or two days ago or something. Will he? Will, will you show him your films and say, you know, yeah, yeah,
0: I showed him an early cut of this and wanted to know what he thought, and um, uh, I can get a lot of. Uh, I can get a lot of insight from Danny uh, because we've got such a long old history. I mean, it goes back uh, more than twenty years, and so we we don't have to dance around each other, mm-hmm. and we can sort of say quite simply, "Why did you do that?" or "Why don't you just cut that?" or you know.
1: I'm interested in how you write the metaphysical into screenplay. That's obviously a huge part of this story. How how are you able to convey? what you want to see on screen in that, in, that, you know, in that format?
0: Sometimes it was difficult because language is not as precise as we think it is. I, I often think about lawyers and judges and I think, um, so here you have people dealing with words that are written in order to be as clear as possible and yet you have an entire industry of judges whose job it is to interpret the words that are trying to be clear. Yes. And that tells you a lot about language. And so when you're dealing with abstractions, you you can feel like you're in a kind of mad loop where you're saying something as clearly as possible, but everyone's looking at you blankly, and you just don't know what the hell to do with it because you, because now you're running out of tools that are available available to us for communication you know mm-hmm. i'm not psychic so i can't play you know it's sort of a weird problem uh, what often used to happen particularly between me and andrew whitehurst the vfx uh supervisor and also with the vf uh, with the production design team is we'd have sheets of paper and drawings and we'd just be drawing stuff because actually in a weird way a drawing can quickly convey something uh and which the words just would never have got you anywhere.
1: Yeah, I, I ask because I and I think it's not spoiling anything just to say that you know the third act of the film and especially the end of the film is an, is a visual and oral experience that I can't I, I have a hard time visualizing what it even looks like in a script.
0: I mean, some of it would not be contained in the script; it would come out of the the conversation and the and the collective, you know. Um, and one of the problems with attributing ideas is that ideas usually come out of a pre-existing conversation. So if somebody says, why don't we do this? Mm -hmm. If the preceding conversation hadn't happened, then they wouldn't say that. So where do you attribute the idea to? It's it's just part of an organic process. But say at a certain point in pre-production, with regard to a sort of moment of notional combat between Natalie Portman's character and a manifestation of herself you start to think, why is it that all, not all, but so many stories end up with a punch up? Like it could be a verbal punch up in a courtroom, or it could be a physical punch up in a bar or the edge of a cliff, or it could be a gunfight or a helicopter chase or whatever it is. But basically, it's a punch up, a
1: physical showdown
0: basically yeah and like like where does that come from and and seeing the ritualistic aspect of it and the aspect of it which is like a dance and then thinking you know what let's make this literally a dance let's get sonoya mizuno who i'd work with on ex machina and is an incredibly incredibly gifted actor but also incredibly gifted dancer and can can sort of uh, communicate an enormous amount physically and put her opposite Natalie who 's also got a lot of history and interest in dance and start to create a sequence that way and let 's not be shy of it let 's just fucking do it and so it 's you know
1: it is i i hadn 't quite put together the thread of choreography there that happens with the last film and with this film too there 's some some synchronicity to those two things oh
0: hugely actually i mean i 've always i've i I think dance is a really fascinating thing and and that aside. Uh, i often try to reach a point in scripts where they become dialogueless and uh key sequences no longer require talking they're just things that you observe and and sort of experience why, why do you do that well just because i dig it it
1: just seems interesting
0: but it's powerful compelling yeah 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 that, that it can be kind of mesmerizing and um and you leave behind all the kind of discourse and it and, and, and then there's something really lovely about that. And um, and there had been elements of that in Ex Machina, and this was an expanded version of that element.
1: One of the things that just rewatching Ex Machina that I really responded to was some of the character's incredible ability to explain things in compelling ways, to to use exposition but as a as a means to explaining a, a character's motivations, the things that they're interested in. This movie, there is a little bit more.
0: But just to say. It, it's a funny thing about exposition mm-hmm. being a sort of dirty word type thing, but that is what we do a lot of in life,
1: yes, we're doing it right now,
0: we're doing it right now, yeah yeah, and and we do it with any number of different things.
1: I think it's because most exposition is bad, and people when they're watching it, they know right away that it's like, oh, this character has to tell us what's going to happen so that we're situated in the next scene
0: yeah, something like that, yeah, because it's 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 unmotivated mm-hmm. by any truth of the character so so you often get uh, I was watching this in a film not that long ago, actually, where you, there were some people running towards a bridge that they were going to set charges on and blow up. And as they were running, they were saying, you set the charge over here and then do that to the dead of that. And you sort of think, well, you discuss all that before you <laughs> right. ran. There was a plan. Yeah, yeah, like you must have had a good half hour before <laughs> where you could have gone through all that stuff. And um, uh, and so in moments like that, you can feel all the artifice and the story is creaking under it and you 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 lose the sense of truth. But you know, some people in a room who are trying to get their head around whether something is sentient or not, or well, they're mm-hmm. going to talk about it—that's legit. Yes, right? so
1: that's reasonable. I, I think I was just responding to it because I think it's th- there's a quest for truth and exposition in the in this story that is a little hard to land on, and in Annihilation, the, yes, and I'd seem, and quite purposefully, it seems like.
0: Yeah, it's got a different process mm-hmm. because in. In Annihilation, I think there's an element of this in Ex Machina, but there's much more in Annihilation, is that it's done by inference, not by statement. Mm-hmm. So it requires a kind of participation by the audience in an explicit way. I think if you watch the film with a closed mind or an expectation to be just spoon-fed in a particular way, it just won't function because because the the audience has to step to the film as much as the film steps to them. Do you
1: feel the weight of a pressure with that, making a film for a major studio, but a film that is obviously intellectual, for lack of a better word, that asks an audience to work a little bit harder than it normally is asked to?
0: I really don't, actually, because there's two reasons. One is uh, actually the transparency I was talking about. I Mm -hmm. write a script, and when I show the script, I'm not kidding. That's the plan. I'm going to shoot it. Mm -hmm. So if you don't like it, don't finance it. It's sort of a pretty fair contract, it seems to me. But that aside, uh, I don't think there is any shortage of very, very sophisticated, interesting drama around. Like, I, I really don't. I thought Moonlight was an incredibly complex, sophisticated, beautiful bit of filmmaking uh, on the big screen. I thought Handmaid's Tale was a s- just remarkable bit of uh, filmed narrative on the small screen. And But your film does have something in common also, just more broadly
1: speaking, with like Transformers. Because it is a big studio film, it is a sci-fi yeah, and a rapper, not. you know? It's
0: it's not. Because, I, I mean, all right, I, I understand. The, you know what the, I mean. I don't, I, it's, I know it's what not you're a saying. denigration.
1: It's just the No, comparison. no, no, no,
0: no, 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 no. I, I totally get it. But the, uh, the VFX budget for Transformers would be considerably larger than the entire budget of uh, Annihilation. Right. I mean, Annihilation is a $40 million film, which is a massive, massive chunk of change, but it's a smaller chunk of change than 250 million. Right. And, and so with that comes different requirements and expectations. However, however, it is in a danger zone, right? It's absolutely in a danger zone because X Machina is a $15 million film that A24 could platform and gradually release and, in a, in a completely different kind of way. Soon as you're in 40 million, you are actually going toe to toe with big movies, which are probably going to uh, annihilate you actually. <laughs> I mean, look, there's a broad truth to what you're saying, but there's a, there's a, I don't know, a slight issue with the comparison, but I get what you're saying.
1: How do you define success for a film like Annihilation personally?
0: Personally, only on the film, like on the film itself. Mm-hmm. I, I have lost money for film studios more often than I've made it. Mm-hmm. I, in many respects, I don't know why I keep getting. I think it's because people question. like your
1: films, honestly. Uh, I think they like the stories they like. The do ideas. you know what I
0: think it is? I think it's because I trick them. I, I think it's because uh, I write genre mm-hmm. and, and people see the genre and maybe think, oh, yeah, maybe this is mainstream. And then I make it and then they go, oh, Christ.
1: Your, your films have made money. That's
0: Some of them have. Some of them, you you want to check out Dread. Yeah, but check that's, out, isn't <laughs> that movies
1: though? That's the movie business.
0: I'll tell you what, Sunshine mm-hmm. lost the bomb. Uh, Dread lost the bomb. Never Let Me Go lost the bomb. Those three films were back to mm-hmm. back. X-Machina made some money, but it really looked like it was going to lose it. Mm-hmm. And it was a weird surprise for everyone involved. And now Annihilation. It's not, it's, that's not a brilliant track record. I'm not trying to talk myself out of a job. You shouldn't. I don't get, I don't get why I keep getting financed is what I mean.
1: Well, given that Jeff's books are part of a trilogy, is that something you were thinking about when you were making your film is like, maybe this will be part of three films no, I'll make.
0: No, I, I knew obviously, cause I'm not naive that studios weren't franchises. Mm-hmm. I, I understood that, but I made it very, very clear that I'm not going to be a person who is going to be involved in a franchise. Um, and, uh, I'm not, I'm not interested in franchises. I sort of tried it once with Dread Mm -hmm. and in a weird way was incredibly relieved that I then didn't have to follow through on the promise because after three years of working on a film, the last thing I want to do is stay in that world. I actually never want to look at the film again, let alone make another version of it. Um, Do you never
1: rewatch your work?
0: Uh, I've never rewatched any film. I've, I've watched like snippets of it. Like sometimes when you do a Q and a, the thing is still showing. And so I'll see like the last five minutes or something like that. Okay. But no, uh, no, I've never watched a film I've worked on.
1: It was just announced that you're going to be making a TV show.
0: Yes. That's what I'm trying to do next year.
1: How are you feeling about making that shift to television from your films? And you know, you've done, you've written novels and written video games, but this is your first proper TV experience.
0: Yeah. So I feel a bit nervous. Yeah. TV is a great venue for doing not not obviously long form narrative, but also more uh, sort of some more complex stuff in some respects.
1: What's the most fun part for you?
0: Quite like writing first drafts because there's a there's a lot of excitement and sort of optimism in it. And I but I really like editing. I really really like editing. Why? Because it's kind of calm and reflective, and it's like doing a massive sequence of super satisfying crossword puzzles because you're presented with a problem and you can't figure out what could possibly be the solution. And when the solutions arrive, they can be so elegant and and sort of like gratifying. And and at the end there's the thing that the collective has worked on, All the, all the people have worked on. And then you can just watch it and say, look, this is what we all did. There's something nice about that.
1: I love that. I like to end every episode by asking filmmakers what's the last great thing that they've seen. Handmaid's so, Tale. Alex, Handmaid's Tale. Yes. Did you um, just watch it?
0: No, I watched it about six months ago.
1: It had, a, it. you know, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the music in your film, and there's a, there are a lot of strong music cues in Handmaid's Tale as well. Is that something that you responded to in Handmaid's?
0: When I'm really, really enjoying something... I stopped deconstructing it. And I can often tell the difference between something I'm enjoying and not really enjoying because I start to think about that stuff. And with Handmaid's Tale, I didn't think about anything except what was happening. I was just locked into it. So when you talk about the music, I have no idea about the music. I've got the haziest sense of how it was shot, which I remember being kind of beautiful and that the performances were great, but really it was the narrative. I was just in the world of it.
1: What a what a pure experience to consume. Uh, I think people will have a very similar experience with Annihilation. Alex,
0: thank you That's so much for generous. doing this. Thanks, man. Cheers.
1: Thanks again for listening to today's show. Next week, I'll be back with a new bonus episode, compiling some of the best conversations Bill Simmons and I have had with the Oscar nominees of 2017. And I want to give a shout out to all of our Oscars coverage on TheRinger.com. I'll be writing exhaustive previews of every race. Lindsay Zolad's tackled the foreign language category this week. Cam Collins has a smart take on the best directing category. I joined the Rewatchables podcast for a special instant Oscars episode hooked to Jordan Peele's Get Out. And a host of Ringer staffers are looking back on the disastrous and hilarious 2013 Oscars on their five-year anniversary. So please check all that out and meet me back here next week for a new episode of The Big Picture. Bachelor Nation. This is Juliette Littman, host of The Bachelor Party podcast. A new season of The Bachelor is in full swing, and so the podcast is back, but this time I have my own feed. You can find new episodes every Monday night by going to theringer.com slash podcast or by subscribing to Bachelor Party wherever you get them. Come for the recaps and roses, stay for the drama, and for moments like this. Please tell me you don't already have a little wiener. I do not have this. So yeah, you did You did awesome. good. Awesome. Don't forget, subscribe to the Bachelor Party podcast today. It's available everywhere, including Apple and Spotify and Google.